The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Hello. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking about Virginia Woolf. The great novelist, the genius novelist, one of the true luminaries of modernism. We'll have a special guest, too. More on that in a moment. But first, let me thank you all for visiting us and for sending us your emails and leaving comments. We're happy to have you on board. Please do subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It really helps us out. Tis the season, people. The season for helping out your favorite literary podcast. Actually, I think... I don't know if we were ever quite your favorite. I think we peaked at number four behind three podcasts dedicated to Harry Potter news. So, tis the season for helping out your fourth favorite literary podcast. And J.K. Rowling is on her own. How will she ever manage? So, Virginia Woolf was born in 1882 and died in 1941. Her accomplishments are almost without parallel. Her novels... Mrs. Dalloway to the Lighthouse, Orlando. Well, let's go through the years, the chronology, because I think this is important. We're going to be looking at a key essay of hers today called Modern Fiction. So let's recap where she was when she wrote that essay. So her first two novels, The Voyage Out, came out in 1915, and Night and Day came out in 1919. Those were her first two novels, and then she wrote this essay called Modern Fiction in 1919. This essay is very influential. It's kind of a manifesto where she sets forth what modern fiction does and can do and should do. She cites the Russians, Chekhov, for example, and James Joyce, who was, uh, well, let's see, Dubliners came out in 1914, and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man came out in 1916. Okay, so things were starting to change. And then Ulysses. Excerpts of Ulysses started coming out. We see the what's often called the stream of consciousness style coming out. It was serialized in the Little Review. Came out, uh, began in March 1918. Came out in serialized form. And that was really a shock to the system, to the literary system. Virginia Woolf was writing this essay in that context. And she was trying to set forth, well... Maybe I should say she wasn't just trying to set forth. She was setting forth what modern fiction, quote unquote, really is. She contrasts modern fiction with some bestsellers of the day, H.G. Wells, John Galsworthy, and Arnold Bennett. Those three were more throwbacks to the 19th century, to the days of Trollope and Thackeray. And Wolf praises the earlier giants like Henry Fielding and Jane Austen in this essay, but really, she's she's mo- she's at her best. She's beautiful in describing what she wants modern fiction to do. Here's a quote. She says, quote, Let us record the atoms as they fall upon the mind in the order in which they fall. Let us trace the pattern, however disconnected and incoherent in appearance, which each sight or incident scores upon the consciousness. Let us not take it for granted that life exists more fully in what is commonly thought big than in what is commonly thought small. End quote. It just doesn't get better than that. And then she herself went on to write novels in that style that tried to record the atoms as they fell upon the mind in the order in which they fell. Or maybe I should say, uh, instead of writing novels in that style, maybe I should say that she wrote with that goal in mind keeping that goal in mind, and and in doing so, she discovered and developed a style that would suit her artistic purposes. In 1922, she published Jacob's Room, and then the great novels of, of Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway in 1925, To the Lighthouse in 1927, Orlando in 1928, and The Waves in 1931. 
She went on to write two more. What's so curious, at least to me, about the essay, Modern Fiction, is that she seems to be of two minds. It's almost like she's two different critics. On the one hand, she's supremely confident, and yet there are places in the essay where she's strangely hesitant. Why? Why would a genius have a hard time saying what she means? Was she trying not to offend? Or was there something else here? Was she hedging her bets? Was she worried that a departure from the conventional might be viewed the wrong way? Or that she might be getting it wrong? But why would a genius like Virginia Woolf worry about that? Her descriptions of what is important and essential about fiction are so clear and so beautiful And she was right, at least if we think of Joyce and Chekhov and Tolstoy and Austin and Fielding. And if we think of those as the the authors worth reading, and we think of H.G. Wells and Arnold Bennett and John Galsworthy as being authors who may have been popular in their day, but are inessential. If that's how we view the literature, the literary pantheon, then Virginia Woolf was getting it all right. Here's another possibility. Maybe... I just don't understand the essay. I've thought about that. Maybe there's a kind of shorthand here, an assumed knowledge that I just can't participate in. Maybe I would understand better if I were a contemporary reader of Ms. Wolfe's. Immersed in Bennett and Galsworthy and H.G. Wells and all the conventions of the day, all the successes, all the bestsellers, I've barely read any of those books. Probably read four or five by H.G. Wells, but I'm not sure I fully understand what she's working against in this essay, because I'm not that familiar with any of the people that she's talking about. I haven't read Bennett and Galsworthy at all. So that's the preface to today's discussion, A Genius in Mid-Career, an essay that's like a manifesto for herself and her entire era, and me, puzzled by it all, admiring the strengths and puzzled by the gaps. And then I heard about a course being taught at the University of Michigan, a graduate seminar in Virginia Woolf, where the goal was to better understand Woolf in general and this essay in particular. And the students were going to read these three authors, the enemies of Virginia Woolf, using enemies in an artistic sense, her opponents, certainly, her foils, the ceiling of conventionality that she was trying to push through. And the seminar was going to see how reading these three authors helped them, the students, understand Virginia Woolf. This was the answer. The key to unlock Woolf in modernism? Maybe. Maybe. So the leader of the seminar, Professor Andrea Zemgulis, was kind enough to join me for a conversation. We'll pick that up mid-discussion, the point where, where she and I started to really dig into the essay modern fiction. After that, we'll have some guests on the show. Jack Wilson Jr. and Jack Wilson Jr. Jr. are going to join us to give us some thoughts on children's books. Some of you might have kids in your life, and some of you might be buying those kids books for the holidays. You think you know what they want? We'll ask a couple of actual kids to tell us the truth. All that and more today on the History of Literature podcast. So let's talk about the essay. All right. This is why I'm so interested in your current project, the seminar that you're teaching now. Mm -hmm. Because when I read this essay, I kind of feel like I can tell that I'm seeing what Virginia Woolf is, what she's saying. And Mm -hmm. I can tell that it's a real takedown, you know, a real critical Mm -hmm. takedown Mm -hmm. of these Mm -hmm. authors. And I can tell that she's setting forth her own kind of artistic, almost a manifesto, I guess. But mm-hmm. it's also really difficult to understand because the authors that she's describing, it, it seems like all the ones that she's praising, I was familiar with, like Joyce and Chekhov and mm-hmm. some of the others. But all of the ones that she's really criticizing and kind of setting herself against, 
are, uh, I mean, I had heard of H.G. Wells, but I had not read much more than the science fiction. Mm-hmm. And she mentions a few others whom I had not read, and I think most people today don't read. So tell us about the graduate seminar, and then we'll talk about kind of what you've been getting out of it. Right. Uh, well, part of it is just taking up that that situation that we're all in, which is her, the battle she's fighting are against people we don't read anymore. So how can we understand her right? Um, without kind of understanding the opponents? And so at the most basic level, we're just reading a kind of selection of the fiction by these writers. You know, to some extent, we think, oh, yeah, she's right in some ways and kind of inaccurate in others. Although we, we when we read this essay, we feel like she's having trouble putting her finger on exactly what mm, bothers her right. about them. Right. She kind of circles around it a couple yeah. of times. Yeah. Let me read a quote here so we can kind of set yeah. this on the t- set the table a little bit. So she's talking about H.G. Wells, Arnold Bent. Arnold Bennett and John Galsworthy, and she says, Mr. Wells, Mr. Bennett, and Mr. Galsworthy have excited so many hopes and disappointed them so persistently that our gratitude largely takes the form of thanking them for having shown us what they might have done, but have not done, what Mm -hmm. we certainly could not do, but as certainly perhaps do not wish to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so she really is kind of, it, it's sort of this faint praise mm-hmm. of, you know, they're, they have all of this talent in a way mm-hmm. and there's somebody mm-hmm. worth taking seriously, but at the same time, they seem to be completely missing the boat on what fiction is and should try to do. Is that kind mm-hmm. of a fair yeah. reading? Yeah, that's fair. And to some extent, I think she's being polite and to some extent, I think she's, can't put her finger on exactly what's wrong with them. To some extent, (laughs) grouping them together doesn't entirely make sense, other than that they are the most famous writers of the day. Right. They are the most successful, but they're very different. So the part of her struggle is saying, well, you know, how are they all getting it wrong? Um, Which is, you know, a hard thing to do. What I picked up on when you're reading that is kind of the kind of syntactical hesitation (laughs) that's going on. Yeah, her next sentence is, no single phrase will sum up the charge or grievance. And then the next sentence starts, if we tried to formulate our meaning in one word, we should. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like she's kind of groping her way forward. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because she was just, this was all so new that it was Mm -hmm. hard to it's easier to see in retrospect the difference between mm-hmm. someone like James Joyce and, and the kind of novels, but maybe it was just hard to see uh, as it was unfolding in real time. Yeah, I imagine it was. And yeah. and I don't think she knew that, as you call this a manifesto, I think she was just being a critic, had, a, had an assignment, and was just trying to sort out what she saw was going on in contemporary literature I don't think she had any idea it would become <laughs> the lens through which we read both her work and the period. Right. But it, it has become that. And it's interesting because I don't think I gave the year of this, but it was written in 1919 and published in 1921. So she mm-hmm. had published a couple of her early books, but she had not, you know, she mm-hmm. uh, it was still mm-hmm. ahead of her to write Mrs. Dalloway and To right, the Lighthouse. Right, right. And so it almost seems like she's... She's trying to figure out how do I want to write? What what mm-hmm. makes sense to me? And why do these books leave me? Why do they fall flat for me? Or why do they feel me? Why do they seem like they're wanting something to me? Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I read The Russians or Joyce, I feel I feel something different. And I want to do that. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So she describes the difference. At one point, she says, if we had to pick one word, we would say they are materialists Mm -hmm. and they're Mm -hmm. concerned not with the spirit, but with the body. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you make sense of that distinction? And are you seeing that as you're reading these these works of these individuals? So when I've come across the word materialist, like in a, we read, uh, I mean, it can have many meanings, but we read The Island of Dr. Moreau by Wells, and mm-hmm. he, he, there comes up with this accusation of a materialism, um, and it just means that radically uh, non-idealist, right? There, there only is the material world. There is no spir- spiritual world. Mm. And I don't think she means that, although she does use the language of the soul and the spirit. When she uses soul and spirit, she's still talking about human life in a non-kind of 
theistic or spiritual uh, kind of what's the word not not in a uh, religious way i'll just say that um, right right and so when she uses materialists against these people she it's to say that they only think of life as the needs of the body money houses and a kind of conventional morality and that kind of the kind of truth and happiness and and beauty that she sees in life uh, and through her literature is just not in, not at all interesting to these writers. Right, right. She has this great line about H.G. Wells where she says, she says, out of the goodness of his heart, like he, she's, yeah. and then she says, he takes upon his shoulders work that ought to have been done by government officials. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so... Like, I think that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like, he's sort of talking about, well, how do we get the greatest happiness for the greatest number? Or what? Do, how do we solve yes, the problem exactly, of exactly. the problem of, of, you know, the housing crisis or whatever the social issue of the day is? He's putting that yeah. into his fiction. Yeah. And he's very and he's very optimistic. She uh, that, you know, for all industrious and if society is organized better and she she criticizes for that, um, that we'll get somewhere you know, we will achieve that goal. Right. And then this was kind of an interesting phrase. She says he forgets in the plethora of ideas and facts, he forgets the crudity and coarseness of his human beings, mm-hmm. which is kind yeah. of the opposite of what I would have thought that, you know, sort yeah. of the, the, the first idea that one might have is that Virginia Woolf is writing about a kind of a higher plane of society or totally, you know, and, and yeah. the idea that, that she's accusing one of these others of forgetting the crudity and coarseness is kind of an interesting accusation yeah, for her to make. There's plenty of crude and coarse characters in this novel, so I, I kind of don't understand it. Um, right. I mean, in this same essay, she you know kind of talks about you know life is big, not small. It's the conception that matters, and so it doesn't even sit well with that, like that she's chiding them for failing there. Kind right. of presenting two two idealistic characters. Yeah, I wonder if so, she means like that he he doesn't have enough complexity of the character that yeah. they're, they're not deep yeah. enough. Maybe that's what she means by coarseness. Um, yeah, that they're they're more types to be pushed around by the author to kind of make a larger point. Yeah, I think that would make sense, but I also think we we don't have to uh, uh, read her essays as you know exemplary (laughs) linear progressions like they're not they are you know they are very smart a lot you know um and a lot of them are structured perfectly but you know sometimes she's a a little off the mark or undercuts her point and and that that's okay it probably we could probably figure something out but i don't think we always have to right right and she wasn't sort of under oath and and she probably wasn't thinking that you know 100 years later people would be trying to parse through individual phrases. So I'm interested in the other two as well. And also she mentions uh, Arnold, I guess that's Bennett, Mm -hmm. that it's well-crafted, but no life. And Mm -hmm. she, she asked the question, how do the, how do the characters live and what do they live for? Yeah. Is that been your experience when you've been reading uh, Arnold Bennett? No, I mean, because my experience, so we, we, for this class, for example, I mean, I've read other Arnold Bennett, and he does have a huge range of styles. So, mm-hmm. but I we decided to focus on his Hilda Lesways, which she takes on mm-hmm. in this essay. We also we also watched a a movie that he wrote the screenplay for. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. Oh yeah, he's he was very successful. <laughs> so we and I, I mean, I'm you know what happened in classes. We bemoaned a lot of the craftsmanship we didn't understand i mean it was a it was a plot that had structure and mm-hmm. there there were relationships at that at that level it, it all worked but there were some so many um annoying we found features of his style oh, that right. i mean i could i found a selection for you okay um, if you want to so in any go he writes better than i could so i i do want to say <laughs> that, right, right. Um, even though I'm going to say, you know, that 
that we did not enjoy. We did not find him the great craftsman that she celebrates him as. And I should say that's just, I think, just a nod to, I mean, it is a kind of a, a double-edged sword. Like, to say he's a craftsman is a bit of an insult. Right, to, right. Um, when, as opposed to an artist. Yeah, or someone with conception, right? Because right. his, his, his essay, his review of Jacob's Room, complains about, you know, writers these days are too clever, right? Cleverness, cleverness mm. takes down. And so she's taking down the, yeah, the workmanlike practical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's a scene between a mother and a daughter, uh, Hilda and her mother. Um, after they have a fight, the paragraph reads, they kissed. Such a candid peacemaking had never occurred between them before. Mrs. Lesways, as simple in forgiveness as in wrath, did not disguise her pleasure in the remarkable fact that it was Hilda who had made the overture. Hilda thought, how strange I am. What is coming over me? She glanced at the range, in which was a pale gleam of red, and that gleam, in the heavy twilight, seemed to her to be inexpressibly, enchantingly mournful. And she herself was mournful about the future, very mournful. She saw no hope. Yet her sadness was beautiful to her, and she was proud. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. There's a there's a lot of writing like that, and I felt of it was something like over narration or yep. over direction, where she feels this way, but a twinge that way. Yep. Um, and it's you know, I mean, it's easy to read, but there's it it verges on like just too much explanation. Yeah. It's pretty clunky. Pretty clunky, yeah. And a lot of it reads that way. Right. Uh, you know, so not horrible. And I, again, I'd say I'm sure it would be better than anything I wrote. Yeah, but you could see where you could see where Virginia Woolf would be saying, you know, she she was seeing other people. Certainly, Joyce was much more mature than that in, in terms right, of right. style, and you could see where she would be admiring. Someone like that. Yeah. And then it's interesting that it, this kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, where you were saying that when you, you finished some of her books and you weren't sure exactly what they were about, she really mm -hmm. talks about that with uh, Chekhov in particular. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And that seems to be That's kind of the, the <laughs> yeah, kind of the opposite of what she's describing with, of the passage you just read of Bennett. Yeah. Where she basically says, let's see if I can pull it here. She says, in every great Russian writer, we seem to discern the features of a saint. If sympathy for the sufferings of others, love towards them, endeavor to reach some goal worthy of the most exacting demands of the spirit, constitute saintliness. Mm -hmm. It is the saint in them which confounds us with a feeling of our own irreligious triviality and turns so many of our famous novels to tinsel and trickery. The conclusions, ah. and this is the best part, the conclusions of the Russian mind, thus comprehensive and compassionate, are inevitably, perhaps, of the utmost sadness. More accurately, indeed, we might speak of the inconclusiveness of the Russian mind. It is the sense that there is no answer, <laughs> that if honestly right. examined, life presents question after question, which must be left to sound on and on after the story is over, in hopeless interrogation that fills us with a deep, and finally it may be with a resentful despair. <laughs> <laughs> that's you. That's you as an undergrad that's, reading yeah, her. That's many, yeah, and many current <laughs> undergrads too. Sure. But hilarious. she just loves the Russians. She loves the soul and yeah. the heart, and yeah. and it, it it also. I mean, it also interested me that she. She gave a lot of credit to the people who had come before her, you know, the uh, Henry Fielding and Jane Austen, and she really seemed to just be dissatisfied with a very particular style of writing that was probably, you know, best-selling yeah. and and yeah. taking yeah. up a lot of the literary scene. Although, you know, it's it's hard not to say. Uh, may, maybe that's one of the other reasons why this essay is so famous is because it looks like. Uh, she looks like a prophet, you know, it right, like everybody right, that right, she right. singles out for praise is somebody is. that we read today. And everybody she criticizes yeah. is somebody who fell by the wayside. Right. Right. And I think after in our class, at least I, certainly the students think 
it's a bit unfair to Gallsworthy. Like we should still be reading Gallsworthy. Oh, so why? Yeah. What do they like about Gallsworthy? Uh, it's just uh, a serious, well-written novel. <laughs> it is actually does have good style. Um, it has interesting ideas, um, and it does seem to be this kind of culmination of you know the 19th century novel that it it nobody ever gets to because it's it's published in the 20th century. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's interesting modernist things in it, um, like uh, a kind of emptiness that structures and drives the plot. Like there's an empty house and an empty character right. where she has no details filled in. So it does interesting things, but, and she, and she, she is much more polite to Galsworthy than she is <laughs> yeah. the other two. So, yeah. I mean, I think well, she, she was, she yeah. lumps him in with them. Yeah. She says, yeah. you know, we speak of quarreling with Mr. Wells, Mr. Bennett and Mr. Galsworthy. And then she has, you know, a page on Bennett, a page on Wells, you know, mm-hmm. a, par- a paragraph that's the length of a page on each of them. And then for yeah. Galsworthy, the only thing I could find that she said was, nor profoundly, though we respect the integrity and humanity of Mr. Galsworthy, shall we find what we seek in his pages. Right. And right, <laughs> That's, I mean, these, these other, yeah, these other authors, yeah. she's got such good lines and she really yeah. is very penetrating yeah. criticism. And with him, she just kind of, she seems to be saying like, well, it's, he's, he's not, not in the right. category. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, um, he's not Chekhov. <laughs> he's not Chekhov, right? <laughs> and I think she, and I think because he, is working in the tradition. There's plenty of examples. Like we don't, we didn't need Galsworthy to happen, right? right? Um, <laughs> we didn't need to go there. Um, we're, we're at this point. We're done with that way of representing the world. Right, right. So let me tell you the. Um, I did read an essay mm-hmm. by. I guess he's a critic. I'm not familiar with him, but his name is Simon Heffer, and he was writing mm-hmm. in the Telegraph, and mm-hmm. he was he wrote this essay about. Uh, Virginia Woolf and her descriptions of these authors. And he basically made the point that he said, you know, when I read this when I was younger, I accepted this dichotomy, but then something in me told me that I should go read those, the authors and see what I thought. And then he, he had a completely different view. And he said, I, I found that these three were much more valuable than I had assumed before. And, and that maybe Woolf and her crowd were, were snobbish and they were overly focused on a kind of aestheticism and a rarefied mm-hmm. artistic sensibility and that the other three were doing more i guess uh proletarian work or or mm-hmm. you know describing well, life as it really was and would and, he say that about Galsworthy? that doesn't really make sense but yeah it, or is it really just bennett and wells um i would have to go back and look at the oh, okay at the essay to see because he's, he's very artsy and aesthetic and oh right <laughs> Okay. So, uh, I mean, I think I, I, we, there's other people who've written similar essays uh-huh. who say Virginia Woolf was wrong and she's done this crime, right? Um, by, but, uh, you know, as we already talked about, she didn't know her essay would be read for a hundred years. Right. And I wouldn't disagree with the point that there's value to these people that she's setting aside, but, but the, the kind of urgency and the battle she feels, I mean, she uses that word, a battle, we've reached the stage of battle, like this, there's, this is a high stakes thing. You know the you know the oppression she feels as a young writer mm-hmm. with a literary establishment heavily weighted behind these people that she was the underdog and now she isn't. Now she's you know a genius writer. Right. Um, but at the time she was the underdog and I was really moved by. So I you know she does a good job making her argument, but I was um, much more moved by uh, an essay by George Orwell, who similarly takes down the. Um, I think he also takes down Shaw. He takes down Shaw, Wells, Galsworthy, and Bennett. He it's a it's an essay that he read on the Indian service on the radio, and he's he says these people had such an insular mindset. Ah. This is little England that got us into the war, and we have to be part of Europe. We have to be part of the world. And um, writers who wrote that way and and think this way, you know, have to, we have to stop reading them. Right. And I think, I mean, it works with Wolf in the sense that, I mean, I don't think she was invoking that context, but we can read her in that context of, 
battling these people who represent a mentality that um, mm. rules mm -hmm. and was rewarded and led to the First World War. And um, so that it was a it was a really urgent message to send. Right. Um, that you know nowadays you can just can you you can not get you can just think of her as the as the winner the victor and right um, right but, but it's it's interesting but I, I enjoy reading right I, I was just gonna say that that's so fascinating because it it does seem like like when you read the bennett it it seems like somebody who is convinced that he knows exactly how the world works and yeah and, and exactly. how you know what Very like what you can say cute. with yeah, what you can say with truth and, and how readers will mm -hmm. respond and here mm -hmm. we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then when you think about what Virginia Woolf was was crying yeah. out for to have the uncertainty and the, the, the plunges into darkness and to not just mm -hmm. assume that the readers and society would would all respond uniformly. Mm -hmm. And and it seems, sounds like Orwell had his finger on the same thing and, and was looking mm -hmm. at how mm -hmm. it can lead a society into... A kind of complacency or a kind of uh insularity like you said um, yeah yeah very very perceptive of you to hear that um just out of a reading um and my students and i were bothered both in wells and in bennett by a kind of uh condescension toward characters right right that exactly the way you're speaking where knowing a human and knowing Kind of just being very cocksure about just how they feel precisely and how much you need to know. Right. How, yeah, exactly what you said. I've kind of heard people say that E.M. Forster, who I know is another uh, uh -huh. someone else, uh -huh. that you read, is kind of like maybe the last genuine omniscient voice that he was still. Mm -hmm. He was maybe one of the one of the latest ones who was still using that assumed omniscience for the narrator, and, yeah. and that right. after yeah. that it. It just people recognize there was too much uncertainty and that, you know, right, you could right. never really speak for people the way that the 19th century authors assumed that you could. Yeah. Last question. If you could summarize uh, what you think you gained in your knowledge of Wolf from reading these these works that she was pushing against, mm -hmm. what would you say that you learned? I'd say that... Um... You know, that, you know, the, the struggle she had to define exactly what were the crimes these writers were committing. I, I mean, I think she, I agree with her. Like, she's doing them justice in a way. Like, I don't think she's getting them wrong in some ways. But in terms of their style, I don't think she was had quite herself figured out what exactly they were doing wrong. And so, I mean, as you were saying earlier, there is this struggle she doesn't struggle as much, I think, when she starts getting to the writers we read now and kind of coming up with those formulations, like let us record the atoms as they fall upon the mind and the order in which they fall, right? Suddenly her language just becomes beautiful and lyric as she's setting out this plan for her own writing. And so I think I hadn't quite appreciated how, yeah, how, how just very much the, I hadn't appreciated how, as you're saying earlier, she was on the verge of a major transformation in style that even describing it was easier, even though I think it was a huge, you know, this revolutionary accomplishment, even describing it was easier for her than it was to describe what other people were doing wrong. Right. That the, the, she, she is kind of Mrs. Marks and is, catty and clever and with those parts and and that was actually a struggle for her i think to figure out what these writers were doing wrong but you know it it almost yeah. it just occurred to me that in some ways mm -hmm. everybody who came after like you and me and everybody else who was reading this essay we have this huge advantage over her which is you know we assume that she knows exactly what she means but we yeah. have the advantage of having read the works that she went on to yeah, write. Right, right, right. And she yeah. hadn't read those yet. She hadn't written them yet. So she, you know, so she, <laughs> right, right. it's like, she's, Invention. it's like she's building this bridge and we see where the bridge is going to end and where, you know, the yeah. cliff on the other side. Yeah. And she's right, just right. building a bridge into thin air. 
and it's not the same, you know, not not really knowing exactly what's going to be on that other side when she finishes her bridge. Right. Exactly. Well put. Okay. Well, (laughs) professors. Can I just say one? Wait, I want to say one more thing. I didn't learn this good class, but it, it kind of just keeps bringing it back to me is that in her private writing, and even in something like A Room of One's Own, she is incredibly anxious as to whether she will be a first-rate, second-rate writer. Yeah. And so I think she can take down these writers because she's confident they are second-rate. She's absolutely confident. Yep. She gets more nervous about, you know, someone like Joyce where she – she didn't enjoy it like she knew she was supposed to, but she also knew he might be first rate and right. she might not be first rate and she really wanted to be so that I, I sense that tension in this essay or that anxiety. Right. And it's almost like she's looking at it and it's that line again where she says they're doing something that we cannot, but then again, it might be something that we do not wish to do. Like she's going to perfect her craft, but she wants to make sure that she's perfecting the right kind of craft. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know how anxious she was about her own rank. How would she rate at the end of her career? So sometimes she's much more reticent in teaching and talking about um, writers than she is in this essay. And so it it definitely was really bold, um, Mm. Mm -hmm. really bold essay. And now it's just read as snobbish and, um, you know, right. queenly, right? Um, yeah. But actually, it was really gutsy and, and would have made her anxious. I read it and feel like she's challenging herself, that she's yeah. she's setting yeah. the mark out and she's saying, this is what I need to live up to or I won't consider myself a success. And she sets it out there very high. And yeah. then I think she made it, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yes. Good for her. <laughs> Okay, Professor Zemgulis, thank you for joining us today on the History of Literature podcast. You're welcome. great oh man there's so much to learn you can hear me in that interview learning in real time my thanks to professor andrea zemgalis for the excellent conversation we had to leave a lot of it on the cutting room floor too and i think we're gonna invite her back for some good em forster discussions so much to look forward to in the new year but first we have the holidays to get through hey we all know it's true people don't read much anymore they're too busy on their phone And they snatch their news from the internet. But the exception is kids. Kids are still reading. People still buy books for kids. Everyone agrees that a child reading a book is a good thing. And frankly, we all want to buy good books for kids. So let's talk to a couple of kids to see what they want. What they really want. Okay, I'm joined now by Jack Wilson Jr. Jack Wilson Jr., how are you today? I'm good. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Christmas books for kids, and let's let's get some some uh, let's talk about you first. So, how old are you? I'm twelve. Okay, and you're a twelve year old male. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so you're going to be speaking on behalf of twelve year old boys this year. And the first thing I wanted to ask you is whether you and most of your friends get books for Christmas. Well, yeah. And it's a you consider that to be a good gift? Yeah. Okay, because you like to read? Yeah. Okay, so why do adults give kids books? Um, They give kids books because they want them to learn and um, 
be educated and not just play video games all the time. Okay, are those good goals in your in your view? I think. Okay. So what type of books do you think parents or teachers think that a 12-year-old would like? Well, since they like to educate, like educational books, they probably would want to give them books about historical fiction or realistic fiction. Okay. And is that does that match up with what kids actually want to get? Well, sometimes well, not really, because usually kids want to get books that are more interesting. Like Ooh. they have a good setting, like Rick Riordan has good books for setting or comics, because some comics are good, like Calvin and Hobbes or Peanuts. Okay. So would a Rick Riordan book be educational in your view? It sort of, because it teaches you about myths. Okay. So a parent might feel good about getting a Rick Riordan book, even if it's uh, maybe not their first choice. Yeah. Okay. And how about Calvin and Hobbes? Do you learn from Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah. You learn about philosophy. Oh, okay. Do you remember any philosophy that you learned from Calvin and Hobbes? No. (laughs) I think, how long have you been reading Calvin and Hobbes? I don't know. Maybe since about first grade? Maybe... Yeah. Okay. Know. You're in seventh grade now? Yeah. And you haven't learned a single thing? Yeah. <laughs> you're not really making the case here. I think there's probably more that you've absorbed that maybe you're just not remembering right now. Yeah. And vocabulary, you can learn that from Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah. Okay. Any other examples of things? I think you said peanuts. Uh, so comic books. How about uh, graphic novels? Mm, less so. They're less educational? Yeah. Okay. And do you think that parents would would give a, a 12-year-old a graphic novel? Maybe. If the 12-year-old requested it, maybe? Probably. Yeah. And But can you learn from a graphic novel? Yes. Okay. Are there any good ones that you have in mind that you would recommend? Simpsons graphic the, novel. Wait, wait, wait. The Simpsons, that's not what I had in mind for a graphic novel. Oh. I was thinking of, aren't there others that you've read that, that have a little more to them than Simpsons? Or is what you're saying that basically kids should read for pleasure and fun and, and as long as they're reading, that's a good goal? Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us today. And we'll have, uh, maybe we'll have some people put uh, The Simpsons and Calvin and Hobbes and Rick Riordan under the tree. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, now I'm joined by another in-studio guest, Jack Wilson Jr. Jr., who's here to give us another perspective on good books to give to kids for the holidays. Jack Wilson Jr. Jr., how are you today? Good. And how old are you? I'm nine. Okay, so do you tend to get books for Christmas? Yes. Is that a good gift in your view? Yeah. Do you? Uh, what kind of books do you like to read? I like to read... Uh, uh, graphic novels, but I also like to read uh, regular novels with chapters. Oh, okay. How many books do you think you've read in your life? you have an estimate? Too many. Too many? (laughs) Why would it be too many? Most people say, I haven't read enough. You feel like your brain is full? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to help you estimate how many books that you've read in your life. So you go to the library about once a week, right? Yeah. And you get about 20 books Yeah. and you pretty much read them all. Yeah. Okay. So 20 times 50 would be about a thousand in a year. Right. And you've been doing that for, for two years, maybe for two years. But so, then we've, I've read other books that have been, but not the library books. Right, books we have at home on the shelf. Yeah. And books that you get at school. Yeah, school. And you've listened to audiobooks. Yeah. And you've been doing that since you were about five, I think, so about four years. So maybe you might be getting close to 5,000 books. I'd say you're probably an expert by now. Okay, and you can't just nod. You have to talk into the microphone. Yes. Okay, so you consider yourself an expert in... In books for kids. Yeah. Okay. So what do adults tend to think that kids would like? If if you left an adult alone, you didn't give him any advice, 
and he or she went to the bookstore to pick out a book for a nine-year-old, what do you think they would come up with? I think they would come up with uh, long and huge books Ooh. with with really um, small worlds and small worlds. Oh, yeah. Like what? What do you mean like, by a small world? Like uh, it it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of. Imagination. Imagination. In mm, yeah. So a small world, it might be a world that doesn't change too much or does yeah. it? And most of the characters are do not change. Their character traits do not change. Oh, and you like books that are a little more inventive, a little more fantastic? Yeah. Okay. Do you have an example of a kind of book that you would uh, like? Fantasy books uh, by experienced writers. Ooh, experienced writers. That's interesting. Like a... Rick Riordan. Oh, Riordan. Rick Riordan. Okay. So what, is there a book in particular of Rick Riordan's you would uh, recommend for somebody just starting out with Rick Riordan? Just starting out with Rick Riordan? Uh, there are a few, sti- few stories, but uh, I would recommend uh, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, okay. uh, The Lightning Thief, oh, the is first that, book. That's the first one in that series. That's right? the very first book, book he wrote. Okay. Yeah. But wait. You said you like experienced authors, and now you just recommended somebody the very first book that he wrote. He have, is is Rick Riordan an exception to this policy of yours? Well, he um he gets better. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like his books get better. <laughs> okay, so you gotta get through the first one. Maybe that one's tough because he's not that experienced, and then yeah, as you go further in the series, he gets better and better. Yeah. Oh well, that's good for an author to keep improving. Okay. So, any other recommendations for for people who are looking to buy a book for a nine year old? Um, probably uh, books that are basically chapter books, but they have lots and lots of pictures. Mm. Like uh, like some some books like Big Nate or Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Oh, okay. Let me ask you something. Don't you think an author's goal is to make you visualize things in your mind so you don't need pictures it depends on what because it depends on what kind of book they're making okay like if if they're making a a chapter book that's Uh supposed to be really long then you probably wouldn't want pictures with that because if it's descriptive then you wouldn't even need that. Right. But if it's, but sometimes to get the point of a joke, you would need like a picture or a drawing. Oh, so it can add something to it, even. Yeah. I see. Uh, and maybe make you laugh in a different way or maybe yeah. convey a, an emotion in a different way. Yeah. Now, let me ask you you've written some stories, right? A little. And when you were writing them, did you wish that you could also draw pictures to go along with it? Or were you comfortable just just sticking to the words that you were putting on the page? I was comfortable putting the words on the page. But if I was better at drawing, I would definitely want to uh, draw. Oh, right. That, that, would have, that would have added a little bit something if you had a little more skill. Okay, well that's honest. Okay, so is that pretty much uh pretty much the list? Are there any any books that you would recommend avoiding for Christmas or any types of books that you would tell parents stay away from these because your kids probably won't like it? Uh historical historical fiction. <laughs> historical fiction. Okay. Cuz we um fourth graders, they read enough of that in school. Oh, okay. So it feels a little bit like homework or yeah. Like an assignment. Okay. Well, I think those are good recommendations. And I think Rick Riordan is, we're, we're going to be, maybe he should uh, sponsor the podcast. He's got a, he's gotten a couple of recommendations here today. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much for joining me today on the History of Literature podcast. You are welcome. What, what was that? You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. 
My thanks to all three of my guests. And here's a, another idea for you holiday shoppers. Professor Zemgulis put me onto this one in a part of the interview that we had to leave on the cutting room floor. Virginia Woolf dolls. Yes, sell those. Professor Zemgulis takes them to class to discuss what it means for Virginia Woolf to have inspired these dolls. How do they reflect our conception of the author? What does she represent in our culture today? And the professor described a magazine spread in which famous authors are shown. I guess it's kind of a fashion spread. The magazine is selling clothing inspired by outfits worn by these famous writers. Except that these are all famous writers who committed suicide. And the photos are of them, they're staging their deaths. And then they say, you can buy these clothes for the low, low price of whatever it is, the clothes the, the clothes the writers were wearing as they're committing suicide. How awful is that? I was, I was mortified. That's not cool, trying to make a, trying to make a buck off of tragedy. Some people just, you know, they hear about a tragedy and they just think, dollar signs how morbid is that where's the empathy people so you could find us gar gar what happened to the music oh i'm getting a a signal from my producer hmm i guess we're gonna play a clip are you oh this is the the part about the magazine spread with the authors and okay okay let's hear it and I bring it to class, and it's Wolf in a beautiful lace gown committing suicide. And, like, they give you the $649 for the gown. And mm. you, you buy the things that she was wearing? Yeah, it's a photo thread. It's one of these new magazines for young people. I forgot what it's called. Right. Maybe I should see if they'd like to be a sponsor of the podcast. Wait, what? Was that me? Did I really say that? Could we? Could we hear that again? Just no, I no remorse whatsoever. Nothing. Just straight to the sponsorship idea. And I bring it to class, and it's Wolf in a beautiful lace gown, committing suicide, and like they give you the six hundred forty nine dollars for the gown, and mm. you you buy the things that she was wearing. Yeah, it's a photo thread. It's one of these new magazines for young people. I forgot what it's called. Right. Maybe I should see if they'd like to be a sponsor of the podcast. Oh, man. Wow, I didn't miss a beat. What a monster I've become. See what this podcast and the forces of commerce have done to me. I need to work on that. Thanks, Carr. Thanks for stepping up in your role as producer. Just what the host needs. You can contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E. WilsonAuthor at gmail.com. Just email to say hello. Tell me what's on your mind. Love to hear from you. We'll be back next week. Is it Julius Caesar yet? Bob Dylan? Somebody good, anyway. In the meantime, you can find us on historyofliterature.com or facebook.com slash historyofliterature. I'm Jack Wilson. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.